Welcome to the 68th episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the rapidly changing consumer economy. This episode is brought to you by Loose Threads membership, which gives you actionable analysis, insights, and events that drive growth, and Loose Threads Espresso, your energizing and high-pressure filter for consumer news and context. We also have a newsletter that features the latest open letters to CEOs, podcasts with industry leaders, and news from Loose Threads. Check it all out at loosethreads.com. Joining me today is Carolyn Yim, the founder of Ply Knits, a contemporary knitwear label pushing the boundaries of technical development and direct-to-consumer aesthetics. Yarns can also have notes, just like fragrance does and whiskeys do and wine does, if it's from a different period of time or different region. Knitwear is in Carolyn's blood as her family has been in knitwear production for generations. Ply Knits, however, brings a modern approach to technical development, challenging the conventional wisdom of how things are done, while putting forth one of the most refined aesthetics I've seen from a young brand. Here's my talk with Carolyn Yim. Why don't we start just talk a bit about kind of your background, and then we can work our way up to the brand and your integration into the family business and so forth. My background came from very non-traditional fashion and retail. I studied at Columbia studying English literature. So that is not what you usually expect of someone to start a business right afterwards and also in fashion as well. But to me, that actually has a lot of tie-over because what I enjoy most about reading books is when you read books throughout history of time, you do get a sense of what people are thinking, what they want, their emotions, their sympathies. And in the end, that's what clothing is and also what business is, is about appealing to people and trying to understand them and making something that is unique and special for each person. And also, what I also enjoy about language is the play of style within, for instance, a poem or with different forms of literature. So in that, it translates also to fashion and style. And so how did you kind of start on your journey into this industry? My first job that was in this industry was at Montclair as an internship. This was after my sophomore year, and I, I suppose as a consumer, you always see the very glitzy side that's outside, and you're not privy to what's going on behind the scenes. So that excited me to see what actually happens behind the scenes, and that was my first foray. And at the time, Montclair just started their North American division, and they had a very tremendous CEO on board, and this was Joe Barato. He was the CEO of Purple Label, Ralph Lauren, and also of Brioni. So under that leadership, it was really exciting to see how you build a brand that had established roots, A, elsewhere, and also one's very specific specialty just in down jackets, and how do you grow that? And in a way, despite that being over 15 years ago now, it still resonates with me how to think about building one's specialty product, which is knitwear for me. So I joined the family business three years ago. I joined with a few things in mind. This was around the time when directing consumer was really changing how people were shopping. And as a producer, you sense the most changes from that end. You really see, I suppose, in the forefront of who's placing the orders, who's canceling, who has most margins in buying the best yarns. And my family business is in knitwear manufacturing, especially in fully fashioned knitwear. And we started with my grandmother three generations ago. Three generations ago, things were really different. We started in Hong Kong, and this was way before Made in China was 
as what we perceive it today. When China opened up in the 80s, my father, who went to business school here in New York, went back and decided to turn into a global business. Where did the family business get to? Where was it, I guess, before you started to have a role? At that time, we worked through agents and middlemen. So middlemen would be companies that's role, such as, for instance, Liam Fong, they have their trading company. You would not directly communicate with the brand, but they will give you an order and tell you information or agents who would bring you the order. But we did not have a direct person to speak to brands. The reason was there was no email. It was not easy to find another brand. My father himself, when he does make business trips, would go once a year and make in-person meetings. And he would carry a suitcase with him that showed all the lookbooks and all the samples of capability. I actually went and accompanied him when I was interning. We went to a few other brands and I got the sense that there was a missing alignment where I suppose often when we meet with a creative director or designer, they would want to see the clothing that is already quite resonant with their aesthetic as opposed to a very technical array of information, which is what, as a factory, we and my father, who's an engineer, would provide. So I found that there's a slight dissonance to how do you market to another brand if you want to manufacture something. So with that in mind, I started Plynets. And Plynets is a knitwear brand. We're consumer-facing, but at the same time, we incorporate deliberately a lot of different techniques that we are really special at to show not only customers, but also other brands what our aesthetic, what our quality is, and what capabilities we can do with the arsenal of machinery that we have. And that, I find, has been the way that most brands in the last few years that have come to approach us for OEM has seen the brand first and then say, hey, can you do this for us? Because we're inspired by this and we like this. So that has been really important. And to innovate and offer something that is special for the brand too. I suppose the past, there's this mentality as a supplier that you just want to get the order, just say yes, do it quick and figure it out later if we do it wrong. But I don't think that's the right way because it's not respectful, not only to the customer, but to your product and to your people. And it's just a waste of money and time. So what we really wanted to do and what I voiced was that communication, number one, has to be key. Figure out up front and have the first sample be correct and be beautiful. And then also to try to understand what the customer's problem is. For instance, one of our customers is now a direct-to-consumer brand, they sell out of a subscription service, out of their boxes. Their problem and their concern is entirely different to a brand whose main sales is on a rack. Because out of a box, you want something that, A, the fit has to be great because they're probably trying it on at home and they have more time to think about whether they like it. B, it has to look beautiful and drape very well inside the box and it has to survive in the box being shipped in jostled around versus if you're in a, on a rack, you want to have something that would stand out among a very big store. But in the box, you want something that's subtle, perhaps just very intimate and catered. So thinking of this in mind, we suggest styles, materials, colors that would resonate with a different customers in mind. And so it sounds like there were almost two leaps there. The first one was 
you need to start having a direct relationship with the customer. And then beyond just that, your customer's entire business model was also changing. Mm-hmm. You're basically saying, like, do the same thing, but do it entirely differently, yes. especially from a sales perspective. So how did the journey of socializing that and, and starting to internalize it go? From the factory side, there was met with resistance because it's not usual for us to get the product right the first time. Usually the way is because with wholesale, you have a six-month lead time. You could make a first product that was 50% there. The designer would come back with it, say, change this. You could get 70% there, and then you're 100% there. But with direct-to-consumer, you have to get from sketch to product very quickly. You often only have three months. With that in mind, we had to get the first product correct in the first go. And to do that has actually helped a lot with apps like we chat on WhatsApp because I was thinking about my brothers in the tech world and he was telling me about how he runs project management and task management. Mm-hmm. How do you keep different people who have a completely different task? How do you keep them on the same goal? In manufacturing so far, it had always been, you know, one person do step A, person always do step B and they don't have awareness of what the end goal is. They just are aware I have to do this. But I find that once you actually join everyone together, for instance, the designer, the technical engineer, for the knitter to the hand weaver together and be saying that this is what we actually want to achieve. We want to have a softer sweater or a sweater that has a firmer turtleneck. How do we do this together? Everyone has their own ideas and it actually helps get to the end goal a lot faster and much more creatively. Right. So I guess it's important at this point to talk a bit about just knitwear itself because it is so different than cut and sew and other kind of just assembling pieces. Talk a bit about it generally and like kind of what was your own interest or learning curve with it. And then we can talk a bit about how that then manifests as everything pushes forward today. Knitwear has 29 steps in the manufacturing process and it starts all with the yarn. So if you were to cut and sew, you're making your fabric from scratch every time. So the hardest part is to get the fabric correctly. And this word is the tension is the most important. The tension is everything. It's whether or not, for instance, if you build a bridge, it would stand. It can easily fall apart. You can easily go through five to 10 different trials until you find the right one. That's where we find that our differences. So our specialty is in super fine gauge knitwear. So that's very, very thin. It's about 21 needles to an inch. So if you can imagine that construction, it's a grid and the grid can very easily fall apart. If it's too loose, the garment would warp. And that's why when you wash a sweater, it shouldn't warp and you can survive in the washing machine. But if you have a sweater that comes out little goofy and funky that's often because the tension is not correct and someone along the way has decided to use a lighter tension and the reason why is because it's cheaper if you have a looser tension so that's usually a telltale sign of how your sweater is when you've worn and you wash it so the 29 steps the hardest is a getting the tension right and towards the end that's hand linking that's another step that is for all the seams and the shoulders and you can tell that it's hand linked when it has fashioning marks and that's just a the best way to make a sweater is via fully fashioned knitting and for us the difference comes in in the minute details of how you do that because i always say that there's five indicators of a good 
sweater. The tension will reveal everything, and where it shows is in the collar. Mm. So the tension of that should be a perfect semicircle. And why that's important is, I think of all yarns as they are all organic matter. I love the different nuances of different merino wools and different cottons and different cashmere. They're all different. If they're from a different region, they're spun a different way. Yarns can also have notes, just like fragrance does and whiskeys do and wine does. If it's from a different period of time or different region, yarn notes is something I really want people to think about and compare. And then you really then enjoy the beauty of organic materials, just like a very sweet organic tomato is sweet and it's tart versus industrialized farm tomato that's big and red, but there's no taste. So back to the five points, the one with the crew neck, and number two is at the hem. The hem should be completely flat at the edges. It should be a straight line. Sometimes you see honeycombing, which is when the knit itself kind of bunches together, mm-hmm. especially towards the waistline. The third sign is at the cuff of the garment as well as the rib. It's the same thing if it honeycombs. That's also a sign that it's not at the right tension. Number four is actually the full weave of the sweater. So a lot of times we make the mistake of scrunching a sweater in the store to say, is it soft or not? Now that's problematic. The reason is because there's many ways makers can cheat to imitate a softness by a, as I mentioned, making it very loose tension so it's not dense, feels fluffy, but as you can imagine with like a gauzy cotton ball, very fluffy, but falls apart very quickly. And that's the problem with a lot of the soft sweaters that you see in stores. Now, the fifth one's a little tricky because it's not direct and applicable for all things, but I think looking at always at the material tag, not that this is the penultimate one, but I say if you find a 70% cashmere, 30% silk garment, that's always really, really good and better than 100. Mm. And the reason is cashmere now, the raw material of the goats are just really, really dire right now. The quality of the hair is very fragile and thin. It's not really at the position it was 20 years mm. ago. Why They're is that? Simply the environmental problems. Mm. Climate change, Mongolia and in Mongolia's pollution rating is, I would say, like five to six times more than the recommended WHO standard. The goats do not have happy environments, Mm. and they just get very stressed. And when you have stressed animals, they produce fragile hairs and brittle hairs, just like you would with stressed chickens, stressed cows. Mm. So with 70% cashmere and 30% silk, the cashmere itself, when you make a yarn, it's layered upon each other. Whereas silk is a filament fiber, so it's extruded, it's one continuous fiber. So it binds really well to cashmere. So it acts as a very strong tensile strength together, and it will have really good drape. It will last you a long time. And so I guess when you were growing up, did you always have exposure to this stuff, or has this knowledge base that you've built up personally happened over the last few years? It happened over the last few years. When I joined and then just noticed that the quality seemed different, because there was one sweater that my dad had from... 20 years ago, that's very, very soft. And I said, we're still using really excellent yarns. And I've seen the other sweaters from other stores who are the best. And we talk among ourselves, among other suppliers who supply for Laura Piana and stuff. It's still not the same. So you just wonder, what are we doing differently? Why is it different? Is it the process? It's not a product that people know a lot about because people give you different reasons and answers. 
in the end, people are still buying it. And because of cashmere's margin, they get to have a very hefty fat margin anyway. It doesn't make a tremendous difference. But on my end, you want to make something that you're really proud of. And for me to see that what we're making now, if it's lesser than what it was before, then why make it? It's very, in a way, quite naive to think that. But if I cannot make a better product than before, why even bother? Especially because as a lineage of a family business, perhaps it's the anxiety of influence of what came before you. You just want to try and do even better and improve. What was the first moment that you realized, okay, we need to start a brand? So right after college, I worked at Saks in the merchandising and buying department. And I remember distinctly one day after work, I was marking down inventory from past orders and taking in shipments from current orders. And then after work, I was walking down Fifth Avenue, seeing everybody on markdown. And I had a very distinct visceral reaction when I walked into H&M. I felt very sick to my stomach, saying, there's so much stuff here, and none of this is necessary. And this is all created just to fulfill this psychological hunger that is sort of creating in people that they need new stuff all the time when we don't. And of course, with my family background in production, we've seen a lot of stuff being rejected or pushed back, just stuff overload. So I wanted to change how we buy things. I'm aware of the hypocrisy too by creating more things, but people are not going to suddenly stop buying things. There's still that desire, but to offer a better alternative that's at least I feel like I've vetted that I know that is well-made, that is not creating more waste. So with that in mind, I made sure all of our products in Planet's brand all come from dead stock yarn that we have left over. So we either choose materials in small cones that have been left over and you can't use anymore because it's so little left. Other brands won't take it. And then also we can actually unwind sweaters back into yarn and then mm -hmm. read put that in into sweaters. And lastly, there's now also recycled cashmere yarn. So they break down the fiber into wool top again, and then they just spin it back into yarn. So all the Plyknits product is from dead stock material. But I don't lead with this when I talk about the brand because I still want aesthetics and the feeling of the product to stand first. And then everything is fully fashioned so that it's a lot less waste than cut and sew. So our first product was pants and to say a pair of denim and fully fashioned pant has 30% less waste in production period. And then my mother has changed how we process water in the plant and everything now is very, very environmentally friendly. With all of this, I feel comfortable saying that this is a sweater that you can buy feeling good about it, but you don't have to buy it. <laughs> I don't want you to buy my sweater because it's on sale or you feel this need because other people are buying it because I think that comes from a psychology that is not sustainable for the human being. Yeah. So that makes sense for the brand, right? Mm -hmm. You can control your expectations mm -hmm. around that. I guess two part question. One, have you tried to apply the mentality to the actual manufacturing business? Because it is, again, as you said, counterintuitive, which is at a very high level, if you're encouraging people to buy less, that means they should therefore make less. And then you would see revenue in some sense, or at least raw mm -hmm. output go down. Is that happening or of interest? Or how does it square with the manufacturing side as well? So on two ways. So the first way is we now also offer our supply of dead stock materials to brands. So they can choose to use that if they wish. And often that actually has been very receptive to brands. And they're really excited by that because... That's something they find that their customer also wants. 
And secondly, we've been purposefully phasing out of working with brands who have that very heavy markdown mentality, that sense of voracious consumption, but working with brands who really try to understand who their customer is. We've seen so many brands come and go, and the ones that are the most long-lasting are the ones who really try to understand their customer, have a very strong sense of who they are, treat them really well with respect. We have worked with brands who you can sense that they come in to cut costs, they come in bargaining, negotiating. But if you see that that's their mentality, you see that in how they treat their customers too, that they're not really thinking about a product that their customer wants, but just making things that they would copy other brands, copy other designers. And right now, I believe that we're going through a position where a lot of copycats are being called out to excess inventory is being called out. And we're seeing one of the biggest retailers, H&M, reveal that they have a lot of unsold inventory. Right. It's $4.3 billion, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's not a small sum. So it sounds like you're interested, I guess, in getting more choosy about who the clients are on yes. the side. Because as you said in the beginning, it sounds like you almost felt the reverberations of all the wholesale problems yes. being at kind of not the end of the chain, but a few steps removed from the actual buying. Yeah. And given a lot of these like very opaque mechanisms of like returns and rejections and so forth, like that hurts. Yes. At your level. There are brands who just operate based on, it's again, like Markdown or a lot of brands that unfortunately supply predominantly mom and pop stores. And because of those stores have decreased, the brands who supply to them also decrease. So being choosy with who we manufacture for is important. But at the same time, you have to be then above just providing a commodity. You have to provide a service. And the service to me, that includes a excellent communication. I think that's always not just speaking a lot, but to actually understand what they're trying to make. Number two, you have to offer something unusual that other suppliers do not have. So being creative and innovative. So for instance, very early on, I actually wanted to make a water-resistant pant for myself mm. because this was, I believe it was one of the hurricanes <laughs> in New York. So as a reason just for me, I wanted to wear something warm. And I had a pair of merino wool leggings that we had made for someone else, but that one always pilled and was warped very quickly. So I started to question, how do you make this better? And it came from thinking about what waterproofing fabric was before. And back in military, the ventile fabric, for instance, is 100% cotton. It was invented by the British RAF. And they had that very, very dense cloth that, by virtue of being so dense, would repel water. And it's 96% merino wool. The reason why it's not 100 is, so from speaking to a lot of women, they do want that stretch and they do want that compression and hugging. And... As of now, the best other yarn to supplement that is Lycra. And I know that Lycra is still a oil-based synthetic yarn. And to me, it's still not the best solution because it's not biodegradable. So I'm still on the hunt for a material that can have that functionality, but yet at the same time be biodegradable. And then to care and wear, you don't actually ever need to dry clean these. Mm. Either hand wash, machine wash, or actually you actually don't have to wash them that much, just like with raw denim, because merino wool does not trap water inside. So as a result, bacteria does not get trapped either. So it's really great. And at the end of this life cycle, if you do decide that you no longer want them, you can compost them. Any merino, cashmere, silk, cotton will just, Mm. over one year of time, be, I think, like 90% gone. But if you were to put in a pair of synthetic 
right. leggings, they would still be there. So talk a bit about kind of the aesthetic of it, because looking at the website, it's one of the more kind of striking aesthetics I've seen, and it's really nice. So how did it come about? How did you figure out where you wanted that to land? Because again, a lot of highly technical innovations or whatever, it would look like a technical innovation. It wouldn't look like an actual brand. And so how did you figure out like how that would get built and kind of how it would mesh with the quality and the way you're pushing the product forward? For myself, I'm really drawn to fine art photography and really great photographers. And I've always loved how there's very instinctual feeling within a millisecond of how an image makes you feel. And not only an image, but the product of, of that very visceral feeling of feeling something in your hands that feels really good, but you're not sure what's going on. And in discussion with behavioral psychology of why we purchase, the first step is always an emotional want. It's something that's very, very small, a very quick flicker. So I always wanted to have an emotional impact first with the garments. And second step is to sort of post-rationalize. You say, oh, it is a good price. Other people like it. So this is the full spectrum of what happens when you purchase. But at the same time, that's not the only reason. I think perhaps it's my background in English literature, and I really loved a lot of modern poetry. I think that there's something that just takes you away from your everyday moments and just be a bit special. And to deliberately use imagery that's beautiful, that's in a way, that's just images that I'm really drawn to. You would think now that because you have to build your own connection with the customer, this should matter more than ever, not it should be mm-hmm. a copycat of a copy. Mm-hmm. Like your whole yes. point is to stand out because yes. you have to, like from a competitive perspective. It's not that you want to blend in with everyone else. And so it's perplexing that everyone else is so unoriginal. Yes. The images I love a lot is Esquire in the 50s, the mm-hmm. Esquire covers. The creative director had his images were often very contained within the image itself and very thought provoking and really pushes the envelope and questions a lot of things. He had the very famous one with the Muhammad Ali and also the Nixon one with their like blotting makeup remover mm. off of him being very powerful with the imagery and making you question and stop for a second because what are we trying to say if we're not trying to say anything different? And what am I trying to say if other people? in the same space are saying that. So I also always want to give a sense of that everything is all right. I don't know if that's a bit odd, but for instance, in my newsletters to my customers, I never do anything salesy or markety. It's always something that I found pleasant during the week. So it's much more just about being and living, not really about here, buy this quickly, three of them at once, three in one, mark one off. And come yeah. back next week and yes. do it again and again and again and yeah. again. Because that thinks about the consumer in silos, that they are not human beings, but as a demographic, as a number, as a 25-year-old who lives in East Village who likes SoulCycle and therefore does this. But that person has other interests and thought, and I think a lot of overemphasis on data and analytics has brought us here because we are way too dominant on these very rational aspects when decision-making and consumer behavior and just human behavior is not 100% rational. In fact, very, very irrational all times. Right. So what do you want to do with the brand? Or like, what's the goal, I guess, both for the brand and then kind of how it fits into the larger business? So the larger business, I want to get better at finding good customers, creating really good clothing, and just being a very good, reliable source for having that. And I think with 
Chinese manufacturing that has been hard so far because one of the biggest struggles, for instance, with planets is when I describe that it's manufactured in China. You often very quickly see the expression change of a person you're talking to because they have a preconceived notion of what that means. But I have visited many other factories in different places and that my mother and my father runs and my grandmother runs. We're pretty good. And even our fine gauge knitting, we put our heart and our soul into that. And my father, every day, just, he's sitting at dinner, he's just sitting there and he'd be like, oh, I think actually this can change. So we really think about how to improve on the product. And when you look at what's happening on the world stage with clothing and the consumers and suppliers, it really only helps to learn from each other to see who makes what best. For instance, I still think Scotland makes the best chunky knitwear. Mm. But for Chinese knitters, why I'd say it's really good in our factory and perhaps in the region is because there's this, I mentioned linking, which is the seams, the hand linking. That skill is running out and it will not be ever replaced in the world because it's so minute. If you imagine a gauge is the number of needles in an inch, so 21 gauge is the linking for our fine knit sweaters. And 21 gauge, there's 21 needles within that one inch that you have to match hand to hand. And this skill came from a lot of the embroiderers who are n part of Chinese clothing makers. That's really what Chinese clothing was about. It was about embroidery. And this embroidery talent, these ladies who are probably 50 or 60 now, retiring soon, nobody wants to take that job. And I've visited another factory in Scotland, and I find that it's still not the same. It kind of bunches. And I'm not saying that this is the case with all factories, but you just kind of then have to learn from each other. If the Scottish factory says, oh, how did you do this so well? Like, how do you match each yarn so well? And the Chinese factory is like, how do you do your alkaline levels so well? So everybody learned from each other to produce better goods. I think it's just all the chain down from the bottom all the way to the top that you have to be thoughtful about what you make and respect what you're making. So where does technology and automation kind of play into both the evolution of it, but also that growing skills gap that mm -hmm. you just alluded to? For the particular machine that is fully fashion knitting and with linking, the most comparable machine to that, this is developed by a Japanese company called Shimaseki. They have developed a whole garment knitting seamless machine. It does remove the need for linking, but it's not at the same fineness as fully fashion still is. Perhaps one day they will make it where it's as fine, but it's still a work in progress. The whole garment machine has been around for 20 years now, but it's still being picked up very, very slowly. The first time I've seen it in mass production is actually at Uniqlo with the Christophe Lemaire collection. He did that in a lot of the dresses, the whole garment dress. But I think they're still limited on what thicknesses you can use and what patterns of stitches. So not until the product is the same level I still think there's a way to go. And there's also that talk about the, I think software is the company that makes mm -hmm. cut and sew with robotics. I haven't seen that in person. I don't know enough about it to speak deeply of it. But I think that could work for perhaps very simple shirts. But at the same time, it can never replace a true tailor. I'm getting a coat fitted and made. And that process has been over a year. And I've been willing to wait for it because this man, he's been doing this for his whole life. He's just absolutely zeroed in and focused on this very specific type of garment from the 50s. And he just knows everything about it. It's not down to just the numbers. It's down to an art and a experience and skill that humans have. And I hope that 
we will continue to cherish this because otherwise leads us to the question of what are we as human beings if we are just a set of yes no's and purely logic and rational then we have no reason to exist we are better replaced by computers what has been the cheapest and most expensive lesson you've learned i guess mostly building the brand i'll start with the cheapest lesson which is actually to source a material that is i always thought was too expensive but in fact if you think about it all the way and if you can cut that margin saving it's so much worth it because i always felt like oh it's so out of reach but like one kilo of cashmere can make about five sweaters down to the math this actually goes a much longer way so at the same time it's expensive yet cheap cheapest lesson i had a very little time for my lookbook for last month fall 2018 and i just decided to share everything with my pixel and actually the images came out really really good mm. and that was really fast and it just was very focused and i could get it done in a very short period of time so it's always that sense of how do you not follow the standard way how do you be crafty how do you just get it done if you had very limited resources because i'm still funding this myself i didn't start off with a big pool and just trying to think of small unusual ways that you can cut corners but still have a very high impact and then in four or five years time what role do you want the brand to play and how big do you want it to get in terms of what does success mean for you with it a friend was telling me he's a restaurateur and he went to japan and he found a pizza store and the pizza restaurant had eight people and he said your pizza is amazing it's the best i've ever had you know i can bring you to hong kong and open up chains for you and make you very very wealthy and he said no that's not what i want what i want is instead of an eight person restaurant i want a six person restaurant to actually be smaller and even better at what i'm doing I have consistent flow of customers who just love what i do it's not aiming for huge, tremendous exponential growth, but to just be steady and always good and always be reliable on the people who do rely on you and who do want your product. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking. Thank you so much, Richie. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. You can read full transcripts of the podcast and join the newsletter at loosethreads.com. Feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. And thanks to George Drake Jr. for editing this episode. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Rachel Blumenthal of Rockets of Awesome, Tony King of King & Partners, and Fran Dunaway of Tomboy X. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.